Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. This program is being broadcast after the elections here in Israel. The elections were held last Tuesday. Now, the elections here... Elections here in Israel are extremely complicated. First, they, uh, they vote, the votes are counted, then they figure <clears throat> how many of the uh, parties past the the bottom limit. You have to get three point some percent in order to be considered to uh, have passed into the Knesset. And the parties that don't get into Knesset, their votes, I think, I'm not quite sure. I think they get divided up among the other parties or else they're just thrown in the trash. I don't remember. So a day or two after the election, you still don't know exactly how many seats are in each party. And then after they uh, decide how many seats are in each party, then the president of Israel calls in uh, those the, the leader of the party that they think can form a coalition. And that leader of the party is given a certain amount of time to try to form a coalition. And if that doesn't work, they call in somebody else to try to form a coalition. So... From the day that you vote until you finally have a government can be a, really a long time. At any rate, perhaps more than ever before, a large number of the Israeli voting public feels politically orphaned. It's hard to be enthusiastic about voting for any one of the 11 main political parties and leaders running for election. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu has become too toxic. He has court cases, and people don't like that. The uh, Yesh Atid party, uh, the leader is named Yair Lapid, and he's been the prime minister, but the truth of the matter is he has really little experience, and he, some people say he's simply too lightweight. National Unity Party is headed by Benny Gantz, his two leftists, as well as some of the other members of his party. Remember, these people were uh, heads of the Israeli army. They include a guy named Gadi Eisenkot. They are considered two left. Now, the Religious Zionist Party is headed by two people. One is called Betzalo Smutrich. And number two is Itamar Ben-Gvir. And many people consider them two extremists, particularly Ben-Gvir. And as far, that's on the right. On the left, they have a party called Meretz. The head of that party is a woman named Zahava Galon. She's considered uh, too left. Labor has a, is headed by a lady named Mirab Machali. She's considered too left. There's a party called Yisrael Beitano. It's headed by a Victor Lieberman, and he's considered too much of an optimistic hack. Now, United Torah Judaism, which is a religious party, Shas is a religious party. They represent only very narrow minority community interests. 
The same is true of the Arab parties. One is called Hadash Ta'al, and the other is called Ra'am. No problem. Uh, they, I don't. I will know uh, by the time I do the last part of this program whether they get in. But there are 40 political parties standing for election, including some lesser-known factions offering all kinds of uh, political alternatives, some of which are quite interesting. None of them will get a will get elected, or a few might garner enough uh, votes to make a better run next time. You're, the next time, by next time, by the way, could be as early as April 2023. Uh, now I'll give you a, a list of some of the uh, underexposed parties running for election. The, the truth of the matter is they make a celebration of democracy. Despite all the negatives of politics, there are still people passionate enough to put their names on a ballot and campaign for what they believe, even when they know it's a losing battle. The truth of the matter is, many of these parties, if they were in the United States, would not be parties, they'd be lobbies. They wouldn't try to get elected, they would just simply try to influence those who do get elected. The... Um, but these, these small parties uh, reaffirm the Zionist belief that the impossible is possible, and from small beginnings, great things can happen. They are the little parties serve as an antidote to widespread cynicism about Israel's political system. So you have, for example, a, part, a party uh, which, which I'll, I'll know by uh, I'll know by the end of this program, the last part of the program, whether they get in. But I just want to say so, tell the listeners who some of them are. There's one called the Poli- Biblical Block Biblical Block Party. It's a joint Jewish Christian list for Knesset. There'd never been one before, and they're, they're according to their campaign. They want to preserve Judeo-Christian values, which they claim are under threat from radical Islam. The party wants to fight for underrepresented Christians in Israel, including non-Jewish Russian immigrants from the former Soviet Union, of whom there are quite a bit. There is a to know good and evil and the Covenant of Abraham's Tribe, Greenleaf and Ostra al-Islamia Party. Now, this is a pro-marijuana Greenleaf Party, which has run unsuccessfully six times. At the zenith, when it won the most voted back in 2015, it actually won 47,000 votes. Now, it's allied with a pro-marijuana Muslim party called the Islamic Family, which is headed by an Arab nurse who runs a coffee shop in a little town called Tira. The coffee shop is called Smoky Monkey, where marijuana is distribu- distributed for medical needs. The uh, By the way, Netanyahu promised in 2020 that he would pass legislation to expunge criminal records for the use and possession of cannabis, 
but his government failed to legislate this. There's another party called the Economic Freedom Party. It's a libertarian party led by someone named Abir Kara, devoted to the interests of small business people and independent contractors. Kara rose to prominence as one of the leaders of the economic protest group called the Shumanim. And uh, he seeks compensation for independent contractors affected by pandemic-related economic closures in line with benefits given to businesses and employed persons. There's also one called the Jewish Home Party. Now, it's led by Ayelet Shaked, who was uh, in the government. She was the um, Minister of Justice. And uh, everybody knows her. She's been in the Knesset for quite a number of years, quite a while. She was in a party uh, with um, another gentleman who is not running at this time. And uh, she's an honest, effective, and weighty conservative leader who has bounced around too many parties. What happens is that since the voters have no say in what the party list looks like, you often find historically what happened in Israel is that people jump from one party to another where they think the most, most chance of getting elected. Now, on this list, in the fourth position, is a woman named Nitsana Darshan Leitner, and she has done a tremendous amount to uh, get compensation for people who have suffered from Arab terrorists. She's taken them into court in the United States, and I think in Europe also, and she's very impressive. The uh, Whether they'll pass, I'll let you know uh, by the end of my program. There's a party called the New Economic, New Economy Party, the former finance ministry accountant named Yaron Zelecha, is a longtime vocal critic of Netanyahu's policies. The, uh, but Zalecha argues that Israel must go much farther and faster in freeing up the economy. Now, there's another, another one called the Order of the House. This is the Taxicab Drivers Party. They're seeking benefits for retired and handicapped Israelis, in particular, Israeli tax drivers. There's a party, believe it or not, called the Pirates. This party does exist. It's run in elections for the last 16 years. Aside from dressing up in this Captain Hook costumes, the only thing the party stands for, as far as I can tell, is democratizing the internet and cancellation of copyright laws. There is a party, it's Israel's only single-issue environmental party, called the Sound of the Environment and the Wild. Their issues include environmental justice, animal rights, and clean public, trans and clean public transportation. There is a Way Party. That's the name of the party. There is a Way. This is the Telegraph Party in favor of marijuana sales, and distribution via an, an app. The founder and party leader is a guy named Amos Dove Silver, was released to house arrest only two weeks ago after three years in custody for running a criminal organization and drug dealing. Um, 
His supporters, by the way, see him as a political prisoner. And then, of course, is something called the blank ballot. In other words, you can go in, and and when you when you go in to vote, you go into a uh, an area, a little booth, if you will, and in front of you have a pile of uh, party uh, uh, notes, a little piece of paper with the party name on it, little piles. You choose the pile that you want from the pile you want, the party you want to run to elect. You put it in an envelope, actually in a double envelope, and you throw it into the ballot box. Now, you can also put in a blank ballot. Going in a completely different direction, Israelis have a protest vote option. Every election, several thousand Israelis drop a blank slip into the ballot box to prove they care enough to vote, but are repulsed by Israel's political leaders. The blank ballot is essentially a vote of no confidence in the entire Israeli political game. It's an assertion of disgust with endless political paralysis, with the wasted time, effort, and money. We're talking about millions and millions of of, uh, Israeli shekels wasted that could go for better uh, purposes. All these repeat elections and uh, they and the they, they, they're also a blank ballot also says not only my disgust with all the elections but I'm disgusted with all the politicians. Maybe if enough blank ballots are cast, perhaps Israel's politician will get the hint and next time offer Israelis more refined, elevated, and substantive option in national leadership and government policy. So this, what I tried to do here, is uh, give the uh, listeners an idea of the 40 political parties standing for election, or they stood for election, and hopefully by, uh, as I said, the election is on Tuesday, and I'll be do my program will be broadcast on Thursday and Sunday, so I'll leave the last part of the program for uh, some idea of the uh, election results. And keep in mind, the results are only partial results because you need, the Knesset has 120 seats. You need 61 seats to have a majority. Of course, you'd like to have more than 61 to have a stable majority. So what's going to happen is that after all the votes are counted, all the parties that get, get move into the Knesset, are going to start dealing with each, with each other, making deals so they can set up a government. And the president will call in that member of Knesset who has the most, the most possible chance of setting up a government, and he will be given the uh, mandate to set up a government. So the election is, just starts with the counting of votes, but until a government can be set up, it could take quite a long time. And if the government is a thin one, let's say 61 seats, there's a good possibility it'll fall, and we'll have another election probably in April. So at this point, when I'm uh, recording the program, uh, it's before the election, but I'm just trying to give the listeners a picture of what the election looks like. 
here in Israel. By the way, there are some very serious issues in this election. For example, there is a party uh, which has central plank is the override uh, an override clause that will enable the Knesset to cancel Supreme Court rulings by a simple majority. It would eliminate judicial oversight. And since the executive and the legislator in Israel are closely linked, and it in effect would kill the separation of the branches of government. Now, there are a lot of people who are in favor of this for a very simple reason. The, the members of the high court in Israel are chosen by other a committee made up of other members of the high court. So they choose people that are like themselves. So the, the uh, high court in Israel pretty much is like single-minded. And also, the, the, some parties want to uh, appoint judges as well as civil servants, and they want to remove fraud and breach of trust in a list of indictments that politicians can be charged with. Now, uh, the, the, these parties speak openly, uh, and uh, they, they said in, they, they, it's true. They, it, it is true that once they get elected, they have to make compromise in order to get into a coalition. But many of them speak out very openly about what they stand for, which is, by the way, a very interesting thing. As I said, and, and I think the um, listeners are aware, you can't choose someone locally who represents you. You can only vote for a party list. It's interesting, by the way, I'm not a sociologist, but you think about for a minute, it's the professional, educated, and urban classes who generally acquire the life experience and social connections that translate into an acceptance of others and a tolerant worldview. You gravitate to cities, you work for multinational companies, you travel the world, you end up realizing there's more to life than some of the basic things that are important in Israel, like the Torah. The, uh, the France, uh, France has all kind of nationalism. There is Hindu nationalism in India. The, uh, and you were born into these things. So the people living in the big cities are, in a sense, more sophisticated it's interesting, by the way, I've seen some studies. Chances are, if you live in, live in a big city, you have fewer children, and uh, the kids now reject the parents' taste in music, but worldviews are hereditary. People sort of, they, you know, you might have a different choice of music and, and uh, entertainment than your parents, but you grow up with a certain uh, worldview. The, um, so liberal democracy could be in trouble. And like in the West now, you have immigration, the collapse of manufacturing, much of the West, the end of pensions, agitation over global warming, and rampant inequality caused by the elite's projects. Uh, there's high tech and the other people who are left out. So there is a lot of resentment. The populist right is highly skilled at turning this into politically effective anger. Some is based on nationalists, some by, based 
on hatred of the educated class, who were not only more liberal and less traditional, but also uh, generally wealthier. In Israel, one of the developed world's egalitarian countries, you have this kind of problem. So it really is a mess. I just wanted to give the listeners some background. It will be too early to determine what the government's going to look like, so the most I will be able to talk about is the relative strength of the parties before they start doing the usual bargaining back and forth. So I'd like to use this uh, segment of program to talk about a little bit of history. A foreign minister of the state of Israel, who you may say is disremembered for some reason or other, no one remembers him. He's Israel's forgotten prime minister. But I think that since uh, his birthday occurred during the month of October, and I didn't see anything mentioned about him in the papers, I felt it is important to, to remember him. Uh, his birthday was October 15th. It is Israel's often forgotten second prime minister. His name was Moshe Sharent. He served as prime minister for 21 months, from January 1954 to November 1955. His time in office is longer than those of Barack, Ehud Barak, which was 20 months, Naftali Bennett, which was 12 months, and depending on the results, potentially longer than Yair Lapid's term. Yet for some mysterious reasons, Sharet, Moses Sharet, is largely unrecalled today. Sharet became prime minister in highly challenging circumstances. The Jewish state was less than six years old, and Arab hostility remained all over, omnipresent. Palestinian terrorists were constantly infiltrating into Israel from Egypt, from the uh, Egypt and Egypt, that is from the Egyptian-controlled Gaza Strip and the Jordanian-controlled West Bank. In 1954 alone, 25 Israelis were murdered in such attacks. In parallel, an economically impoverished Israel struggled to integrate the waves of new immigrants from Europe and the Middle East, with the country's population more than doubling since independence in 1948. Hundreds of thousands of people were living in temporary transit camps, and there is overcrowding, and these rudimentary conditions made for a multitude of social and economic problems. David Ben-Gurion, who was Israel's larger-than-life founding prime minister, had been the dominant political figure in those early years. He led the struggle for independence, and he oversaw the victory in the 1948-1949 war. 
But after years at the pinnacle of national leadership, Ben-Gurion said he needed a rest, and in 1953 announced his intention to resign. Famously, Ben-Gurion opted to return to his pioneering roots and settled on Kibbutz de Boker in the then largely barren Negev Desert. Sharat was not Ben-Gurion's first choice for his successor as Prime Minister. The one he wanted was Levi Eshkol, who refused to take the position. But Sharat was no political novice. Since 1933, he had served as the head of the Jewish Agency's political department, and he directed Zionist diplomacy in the years leading up to statehood. With the establishment of the State of Israel, Shred became the country's first foreign minister, a role he held while serving even as prime minister. Ben-Gurion had also combined the premiership with another senior portfolio. Ben-Gurion has served both as prime minister and defense minister. Though Charette had all the official legal powers of the premiership, he found that Ben-Gurion's authority cast a shadow over his, over his entire term as prime minister. Ben-Gurion remained the dominant force behind the scenes in the ruling Mapai Labor Party, in the government, and even in the army. Ministers, members of Knesset, and commanders of the army often conducted pilgrimage to stay Boker to seek the former prime minister's guidance. Emblematic of Chirot's limited authority was something called the Lavon Affair, which was a security, security debacle that remained politically contentious in Israel for over a decade. Before Ben-Gurion left office, he orchestrated two crucial appointments, Pinchas Lavon as defense minister and Moshe Dayan as the head of the army's chief of staff. Neither was particularly enamored with Charette's leadership, and while they had office, the IDF was involved in a botched intelligence operation that occurred without the knowledge or authority of the Prime Minister. In the summer of 1954, in the summer of 1954, Israeli military intelligence instructed a group of Egyptian Jews it had recruited to carry out clandestine activities designed to destabilize the new free officers regime in Cairo. Members of the Jewish underground cell were sent to plant bombs in Egyptian cinemas, English libraries, and American educational centers. To avoid civilian deaths, the explosives were supposed to be detonated late at night when the institutions targeted were empty. What the idea was to have the attacks blamed on local communists 
nationalist and Muslim brotherhood, which would create a climate of insecurity that would supposedly lead the British to rethink their planned military evacuation of the Suez Canal. The operation caused no casualties except among the cell members themselves. Two committed suicide after being captured. Two were tried, convicted, and executed by the Egyptian authorities. What happened then was that in Israel, a huge controversy erupted over who had authorized this failed operation. The head of military intelligence at that time, a man named Benjamin Ghibli, claimed that the order had directly come from Levon, who was the Minister of Defense. By contrast, the defense minister himself claimed that Ghibli's charge was a fabrication designed to clear the military of responsibility for this debacle. Despite his repeated declarations of innocence, Levon had to resign, with Ben-Gurion returning to the Defense Ministry in February of 1955, though not to the Premiership. This caused a bizarre political situation in which Israel's preeminent leader served in a secondary role under a prime minister whose authority continued to erode. Now, Ben-Gurion returned to the premiership in November of 1955, but he kept Charette on as foreign minister, but dismissed him five months later. Relations between the two men had become increasingly strained, their policies' differences exacerbated by growing personal animosity. So instead of Charette, Ben-Gurion chose Golda Meir as his new foreign minister. She was politically loyal to Ben-Gurion and shared his activist security first approach. It is unlikely that Charette would have supported Ben-Gurion's October 1956 decision to join Britain and France in an attack on Egypt. Of course, Golda Meir did support what was happening. Many contemporary Israeli doves have retrospectively embraced Charette's temperate views. In the years before statehood, Charette, although a loyal member of the Mapai labor leadership, was nonetheless often more sympathetic to Chaim Weitzman's moderation to the, than to the combative positions advocated by Ben-Gurion, who is Charette's party leader. And during the 1950s, in cabinet debates over the Army's policy of launching reposal operations following Arab attacks, Ben-Gurion and Dayan would place plans for a forceful response before the cabinet only to see Charette galvanize a majority behind a more restrained approach. Now, this made Charette an anathema for the hawks, for the people who wanted more action. 
security activists saw in a demonstration of Israel's military prowess a formula for enhancing deterrence, which they hoped would bring quiet to Israel's borders. Now, it wasn't that Sharet believed peace with the Arabs was imminent. Rather, he opposed military operations that, in his view, only inflamed tensions while in parallel undermined Israel's standing in the international community. Now, what's interesting is that in the end, Sharet got even with Ben-Gurion for his 1956 ouster. Ben-Gurion had resigned from the premiership for the second time in 1963, but he had turned against his second successor, Levi Eshkol. The ruling Mapar Party conference met in February of 1965 to debate Ben-Gurion's demand to unseat Israel's third prime minister. Now, Charette was dying of cancer. He was brought into the hall in a wheelchair and delivered a piercing attack on Ben-Gurion. For the assembled party delegate, Charette's remarks stole the show, ensuring a marked majority vote against Ben-Gurion who in defeat was forced to leave the Mapai party and establish a rival party that was not successful. So the uh, this is a little bit of history, but it the as I said at the beginning, Moshe Charette was very actively, uh, actively involved in Israeli politics even before the state came into being from 1933. Unfortunately for him, he made some enemies who were much stronger than him, like Ben-Gurion. However, as I said, he's pretty much forgotten. He was involved in a lot of things that are in the history books now. And as I said at the outset, October 15th was his birthday, and he is Israel's often forgotten man. And he was prime minister, he was foreign minister, he had all these positions, and nobody even mentioned him during the month of October. So I felt I sort of owed it to my listeners to bring up this forgotten man because he had been very active in the founding of the state. I want to say just a few words about Israel's relationship with the United States. Um, obviously, it's a, a very complicated topic, but in general, there's no formal defense treaty between the two countries, but there are numerous strategic, formal, and informal agreements on energy, technology, defense, intelligence, cooperation, economy, and trade. The bilateral bonds are strong, they're wide-ranging and deep. Additionally, Israel is more than simply another ally or a recipient of generous American assistance. It actively assists the the United States, and that is very important. American financial military funds for Israel, amounting to $3.9 billion a year, are invested in American defense industries, Israel battlefield experience and technology 
directly assist American ballistic missile defense development and cyber defense and more. At the community level in the United States, Jewish and evangelical communities both treasure Israel's welfare and security. Now this is the foundation for some extremely significant principles that characterize bilateral relations. The first principle, and probably the most important one, is complete transparency, meaning no concealment and mutual respect. The second important principle is that of no surprises. This applies less to the tactical military level and more to the grand strategic and political level. Neither side wants to catch the other off guard by making a significant move. This also suggests that both parties would know in advance about any U.S. failure, for example, to veto a U.N. Security Council resolution against Israel. The third important principle between in the relationship between Israel and the United States is bipartisan American support for Israel. This is one of the three golden rules, and according to it, Israel is above any political debate in the U.S., between Republicans and Democrats. Today, with extreme polarization underway in the United States, there is a huge gap between the Democratic and the Republican parties. Something that has been in place throughout both the Obama and Trump administrations, this principle of being being above political debate in the United States has been eroded. Today, Israel deals with a U.S. president, one who is not necessarily a trailblazer, but who maintains fair ties with Israel. This is an administration that is well-versed in knowing how to agree to disagree. This means that relations are not, are not undermined by lack of agreement. That's very important. Now, into this framework enters the effort by Washington to revive the nuclear deal from 2015. When it's passed seven years ago, Israel bet on going to Congress to torpedo it, and this was a total failure. failure. Our prime minister spoke in Congress. And as a result, the U.S. excluded Israel from the talks. Back then, Jerusalem found itself without any control or up-to-date knowledge regarding the specifics of the deal. Therefore, we should have learned something, and hopefully we did. Based on the bitter experience of 2015, Israel should avoid public fights with the U.S. or any move that can be guarded as meddling in internal American politics. Israel should avoid crossing the boundaries, but without giving up any of its principal objections to this deal with Iran and the dangers that it could bring to the existence of Israel. It is not necessary for Israel to align itself with all the American policies. 
Rather, Israel must communicate discreetly with members of Congress. It's not about self-censorship, but how the message is to be delivered. And that is really, we Israel is still obligated to exert every effort it can. Thanks for listening. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Bruce Brill here from Nokdim, Israel, in Judea, the homeland of the Jews, and I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Morris from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. There was an election in Israel this week. Actually, it's very interesting. We are uh, between two elections of interest. The one election in Israel was Tuesday. The election in the United States, which is also affects Israel quite a bit, will be next Tuesday. So it's a rather odd time between two major elections that affect the state of Israel. Now, the, it takes, it's a very complicated system in deciding how the votes are split up in Israel because there are certain uh, um, parties that do not reach the uh, um, nominal and uh, lowest level of uh, percentage of the votes. It's a little over 3%. So if you don't uh, reach that level, you're simply not going to be in the Knesset, your party. Uh, more than 30 parties ran, and I think uh, something like 12 or 16 are going to get in. The numbers are really not important. The bottom line is you have to make a coalition. You, the Knesset has 120 seats. To essentially have a margin, you need more than half, means you have to have 61, but 61 is an extremely weak coalition. Uh, One member can switch parties or decide not to vote for whatever reason, and you no longer have the majority, and the government may fall. The fact that we've had five elections within two and a half years means that the system is really no good and has to be changed because not only do we get a lack of um, stability, but it costs a fortune to have these elections. Truth of the matter is, they should, uh, I, my own idea, I have a few ideas, and one of them is that the, uh, they should not, the government should not give the parties money to run in the election if they If they have enough supporters, let the supporters give money to the parties so that they can uh, run in the election. Uh, There are other countries that have a much better system. And the the, uh, 
Israeli system, I believe, is really a very weak one. Needs a lot, a lot of improvement, um, including the fact that when you vote, you vote for a list of 120 members. You have no choice who's on that list. Uh, and uh, when you vote, you vote only for a party. You only get one vote. You have to vote for a list of 120 people, most of whom you have no idea who they are. As a matter of fact, uh, the parties have people on the end of the list who are given honorable positions. No, no, it's known that none of these people is going to get in, but only the top people are going to get in. But the others, are, for example, the longtime members of the party, former prime ministers, uh, people who have had positions in the government before, they're added to the end of the list. They're certainly not going to get elected. So the system really is a bad one. But I, that's not the subject of uh, this program. We are right after the election. Uh, it's hard to know how much, uh, what the final amount is going to be for each party. And um, in the end, we have to remember that no matter what government will be formed, even if it falls, the country does need to keep moving forward. Israel needs to keep advancing, and the people here need to continue to enjoy their lives and be productive and be secure and so forth. All the things that a country needs. Besides the political problems within our country, we have problems along our, along our borders, very serious problems. The reason gas deal with Lebanon may have prevented an escalation with Hezbollah in Lebanon but that conflict is uh, just a matter of time. As long as you have a uh, party, I don't, can't even call it a, car, a party, as long as you have a group of terrorists running the country on your border, there's going to be a problem eventually, sooner or later. The Iranian-backed terror group has accumulated more than 100,000 missiles and rockets for the sole purpose of attacking Israel. So now that is Hamas is in um, the Gaza Strip. Hezbollah is in, in Lebanon. Hamas uh, is in the Gaza Strip. But it obviously hasn't abandoned its desire to destroy the Jewish state. The, uh, this year is shaping up, according to the experts, to be the year with the highest number of Israeli casualties due to terrorism since the so-called Knife Intifada in 2015. According to the Israeli security people, the Shin Bet, there, has been, there have been 2,204 terror attacks in the past year that claims of lives of 25 people. And of course, above all of this is Iran, which is working toward getting a nuclear weapon. The, uh, now, right at the moment, Iran is, has its own internal problems because uh, the woman was murdered there by their secret police, and they have riots all over the country. So uh, that, that, that's only a matter of time. The, they have not given up their ambition to uh, obtain a nuclear capability.
And then, on top of all of this, according to the papers, there's a global economy crisis. High-tech companies in Israel announced just the other day they're beginning to panic and they're heading into an economic downturn. More than 700 workers and high-tech were laid off last week. So the... Uh, so it's within this context that we have, we have to look at what's been going on on the electoral fund. We have had five rounds of election over the past three and a half years. And if we don't form a stable government, we're going to end up having another election in April. I don't, I don't know uh, why the number of April has been mentioned. The month of April has been mentioned, but apparently there is some rule in Israel that you uh, can have uh, elections too often was kind of funny. One would think that five elections in three and a half years is, is uh, seems like a lot. It reminds me of the French government after the Second World War. Somebody called for COVID and they had elections all the time. Now, there's no doubt that these continuous elections have a corrosive effect on Israeli society. But, you know, it's uh, interesting, by the way, when you uh, they have elections in Israel to make sure that everyone votes, it's a day off from work. So what do people do? So there's a tremendous loss in the economy, a day of people not working. On the other hand, the people love it. Because what happens is you, people vote early in the morning so they can have the rest of the day off. And if it's a day that has very nice weather, so then they really, uh, they really have a wonderful time. Everybody runs in their long lines at the uh, polls uh, every mo every uh, the morning of the election day, and uh, in the afternoon they're practically empty because everybody votes early in the morning so they can take the rest of the day off. So what happens is, it's, I guess somebody should really write a poem about it because it's kind of interesting too. The uh, the polls are filled in the morning in long lines and in the afternoon the long lines have moved to the restaurants so everybody votes early and then they um, then they run off to have a good time by the way I, on a personal level I had something very interesting uh, uh, my wife and I voted in a local school and the school has a number of polling places inside and the voters are assigned to a particular polling place and another thing which they have, which is kind of nice, if you're old, I think it's 70 or 75 years old, you don't have to wait in line. So what happened was uh, we uh, moved to the front of the line. We and that, that, They didn't ask how old we are. I guess my wife and I let her be, well, it looks kind of old. I, I don't know. I consider her looking young. Anyhow, let's say they just used me as the example. I looked old, so I moved right to the front line. I found out where, um, which room we had to go to vote. And uh, at the moment that we turned to go toward our room, another um, old voter appeared. It turned out he was the former uh, president, Ruby Rivlin. So we had to, uh, we had the pleasure, of, uh, my wife took a picture with him which I'll get framed or I'll put it on the refrigerator. Uh, also, it was very funny. I mean, he was a president. He was a member of the good party, a good party, a real party man, all the way back from his childhood. 
So uh, I asked him who he voted for, and he couldn't stop laughing. At any rate, um, so uh, we're in a real mess now. And that is why Israel needs a stable government. The, uh, we have to urge the elected politicians to ensure that they put their country first before themselves and their personal agendas, whatever they may be. But that, that's almost a mission impossible. Since, uh, as I've mentioned before, and I think the listeners know, the uh, members of the Knesset don't really care what the, what the voters think about them because all they have to do is make sure that they have favor in the eyes of the party leaders so they appear on the list. And uh, they, for example, the, uh, a difference uh, to the United States, in the United States, uh, people are voting on the local level and they run against other people on the local level and the congressman has an office in his electoral district that you can go to with your problems and your complaints. But here you have absolutely nobody to turn to. Now, on top of this, uh, we'll soon mark the 75th anniversary of the UN vote on November 29th, back in 1947. And that was the end of the British mandate, the establishment of the state of uh, Israel. And a few months down the road, we'll celebrate 70 years of independence, sovereignty, in our ancient homeland. So the question is, how do we spend the time now? Is it going to be another election campaign in April? It would have, uh, uh, by the way, it's very funny. I, I know that I know, according to the rules, the law that you can't have another election until April. And when uh, we went to vote, you know, in the in each voting area next to each ballot box, and by by the way. Uh, Israel does not have voting machines. You, uh, there's a ballot box. When you walk in, you show your identification. They give you an envelope. You walk behind a uh, curtain, if you will, and uh, you find in front of you a bunch of uh, little notes, piles of notes, each one representing a ballot for that particular party. You pick a note off the pile representing the party you want to vote on. You put uh, you put it in an envelope. You seal the envelope. You step out from behind the curtain. You walk over to the ballot box and you put in your uh, ballot. And by the way, another thing, just to, to, to paint a clear picture, when you walk into the room where you're going to ballot, where you're going to vote, there are like uh, five people there. There are people who essentially represent the government, uh, and uh, there are two or three of them. And you have people who uh, represent, also represent the government in the sense that they're watching the election to make sure it's uh, everything is kosher. And I don't, I don't remember what each one's supposed to do, but there are five people. So by the way, a lot of these people sitting behind the desk when you walk in are quite young because it's a way for people to make some money. You get paid for the day you spend. And the, the uh, balloting starts at 7 o'clock in the morning. It goes on to, I think, 10 o'clock at night. And so it's a way for a lot of people, particularly young people who need money, to make some money. 
they make a, they uh, they sign up. They end up being poll watchers in one form or another. Uh, so uh, the in order to prevent an election, as uh, as I said a moment ago, the uh, politicians have to be creative, and and they they um, it's interesting for us. I noticed that someone pointed out, for example how the last government came into being. Uh, some people, whether you liked them or not, felt that the stagnation cannot continue. Something had to change. They took the initiative and they tried to move the country out of the political quagmire toward a better future. And it didn't work, so we had another election. What we really need is something which perhaps it's, um, it's dreaming to think we'll get it, but we need politicians who care for the country more than they care for themselves. Politicians want to keep the company moving forward and to understand that we are um, facing a, uh, a particular moment, a difficult moment in our history. You just simply can't continue to have elections. It makes no sense whatsoever. Most depressing, regardless of who one, who forms the government, the, uh, the fifth election was just too much. Um, the, uh, it's interesting, um, the, uh, one of the parties which apparently has done well, it's, uh, it's the National Religious Party, which uh, more than doubled its representation. The... Uh, People who don't like some of the radicals that were elected, they, they, I saw someone writing, anyone who cares about Israel's soul must confront the prejudice that uh, help uh, these uh, right-wing radicals get into office. But it's interesting, I mean, if right-wing radicals get into office because the people are upset about something, otherwise they wouldn't vote for right-wingers, whether you call them radicals or not. If you complain about an election because you didn't like who got elected, you may have to answer some more or less a philosophical question. Why did people vote for these people that you think are terrible? There must be something happening in the society. The And uh, right now, the... the uh, the, the people, a lot of people are burying their heads in the sand, the uh, ignoring the justifiable fears of the people that caused them to vote for the right wing. Many Jews are still reeling from the Arab riots in the so-called mixed cities like Lud and, and others where there's a large Arab population. There were riots back in May, and the Jews were, were afraid of their neighbors. Jews, the uh, in the city of Lud, which is a good example. By the way, it's right near the airport. And um, and the Arabs turned on their neighbors, not all of them, of course. Uh, and Palestinian terrorists are targeting Jews daily. But most Jews who live like in a place like a metropolitan area like uh, Tel Aviv, they simply ignore it. Whereas the people in the Galilee, people in who live in Jerusalem, people who live in, in areas close to the uh, border with the Arabs are very sensitive 
if you go into uh, Tel Aviv, and I've been here, I very rarely go to Tel Aviv. I was there several times in the last week, and it's a very normal city. It's building, it's everything's going on. You would think there's no Arab terrorism at all. So uh, it, it, we're living in very difficult times, and I truly believe that many people don't realize how difficult the times are because they live in cocoons and they're not touched by the terrorism. It's always something you read about in the paper or hear about it on television, and you just turn to the next page or the next program. Interesting enough, most Israeli Arabs know they're better off than most other Arabs in all the neighboring countries. They enjoy democratic rights and increasingly middle-class society. The, but their liberty and their prosperity come from a very complicated identity. It's hard being a, mire, uh, a, a minority, expect, particularly when the Arabs and, their, and a lot of their leaders want to be the majority here. And uh, unfortunately, he was among the religious leaders who have tremendous influence on the people. There are those who think they should eliminate the Jewish state. So uh, it's a very, it's an extremely difficult situation. This, these are the facts on the ground. I want to be—I don't want to be pessimistic. I want to be realistic. Until next time, take care of yourself. If you love Israel News Talk Radio then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dots, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dots from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.